This is a non-promotional podcast intended for UK health professionals organised and funded by Bayer. This podcast contains content that some listeners may find upsetting, including topics such as death and murder. For support, please visit the links in the podcast description. Hello, I'm Peter Cackett, and I've teamed up with Bayer to bring to you this podcast, which we have called Eye on the Horizon. In this series, I'll be interviewing doctors and scientists who I think have a really interesting story to tell. And I'm hoping that you will find our discussions thought-provoking as well and make you pause and reflect as you move forward with your own journeys through life. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Eye on the Horizon podcast series, generously sponsored by Bayer. And in this episode, I'm interviewing one of the world's leading anatomists and forensic anthropologists, Professor Dame Sue Black. Sue's career has taken her throughout the UK, from St Thomas's Hospital in London as an anatomy lecturer, where we first met when I was a pre-clinical medical student over 30 years ago, to Professor of Anatomy and Forensic Anthropology at Dundee University, and now onto the Dreaming Spies of Oxford, where she's currently the 37th President of St John's College. Sue has worked for the Home Office, undertaking forensic investigations in Iraq, Sierra Leone and Grenada. She was a lead forensic anthropologist during international war crimes investigations of Slobodan Milosevic in Kosovo, and was one of the first forensic scientists to travel to Thailand following the Boxing Day tsunami to help identify the dead. She was made a Dane Commander of the Order of the British Empire in 2016, and in 2021 entered the House of Lords as a crossbencher peer as Baroness Black of Strome. So welcome, Sue. It's an honour to interview you today, and that's quite some career. And I feel the same way now as I did before my anatomy viva in the first year, uh, even though this time I'm getting to ask the questions myself. So I know we've got a lot to discuss. And first off, uh, I'd like you to explain to our audience, our listener in Leicester, what exactly is forensic anthropology? Okay, well, it's such a pleasure to be here, Peter. It really is. And it doesn't seem at all possible that so much time has passed since those days in which I terrorised you as, as an academic. But you were a good student. Hey, I don't have ever been more terrified before an anatomy vibe in my life. <laughs> well, there you go. You obviously survived it very well. That's good training. Oh, yeah. So two words in there, forensic and anthropology. Forensic comes from the Latin word forensis, which means pertaining to the forum. And the forum was, of course, the, the precursor of the courts of Rome. So anywhere that you use the word forensic, it means you're an expert witness to the court. So we don't work for the police. We don't work for anybody else. We are there to give our evidence to the court. The anthropology bit is Greek. So we've got a bit of Latin, a bit of Greek. And anthropology just means the study of the human. So if you put them together, it's the study of the human or what remains of the human for medical legal purposes. And normally the question is, what's the difference between forensic anthropology and forensic pathology? Well, the obvious answer is the salary, because one is much, much better than the other. Yeah. But the reality is a forensic pathologist is trained to talk about the manner of death and the cause of death. And anthropology is primarily about the identification. Who was the individual when they were alive? I know that uh, in your initial job at the hospital, you were lecturing anatomy, and I believe that you were appointed on the ability to be able to teach a brachial plexus that same afternoon. And that's very impressive. Could you still do that? Do you retain an encyclopedic knowledge of anatomy? 
No, I wish I did. I wish I did. Old, old age is not fair. But um, I was interviewed by Michael Day. And of course, Michael Day was one of the great paleontologists. And he had said to me, he was desperately looking for somebody to be appointed who was an anatomist. And the equivalent from guys, because we were just at the merger between Thomas's and guys at the time, wanted somebody who was a cell biologist. And Michael Day wanted someone who could go into the dissecting room. And he said, if I asked you to go into the dissecting room this afternoon, could you teach the brachial plexus? And was I ever going to say, no, of course not? I said, of course I could. Now, the honest truth was I couldn't have done. But I've used that in so many interviews since where I've interviewed people to say, if I ask you to go into the dissecting room, could you teach the brachial plexus? And they say, yes. So I learned, I usually put a piece of paper and a pen over to them and say, right, draw it for me. Um, now, if that had happened to me at Thomas's, I might not have got the job, um, wow. but I learned from it. So I can still do the brachial plexus. I absolutely can. But it's frightening how much of the detail of anatomy does get lost over time if you don't um, use it constantly right. but it's sort of sitting in there as yeah. sort of stitched into your dna that it doesn't take much for it to come back out again i don't think so i think i've lost a lot of my anatomy knowledge now unfortunately i rely on just a few humorous mnemonics that i learned from that administrators <laughs> let's that, not go there they're I not know. appropriate these days I, I can't remember the bones of the wrist though you'll be pleased to know okay <laughs> Um, have you seen anatomy to, teaching anatomy to medical students change throughout your career? Has it become less prominent? Is a, do you still think dissection is important? So I think it has changed, but I think it's been changing for a very long time because I can remember when I was going through anatomy in the 1980s, there was a lot of debate about how much anatomy did medical students need to learn. And, you know, I think there's a lot of truth in that that says, do you really need to know the afferents and the efferent connections of the otic ganglion? No, by and large, you don't. So we were teaching far too much detail. I think scientists such as I was, who are going to go on to teach anatomy, we need the detail. But I think for medical students, it really was too much. I think the pendulum then some for a little while went too far the other way in that it was viewed that anatomy pun intended, was an old dead subject and therefore had no role in the modern medical curriculum. But I think that was quickly shown not to be true when we opened a, a medical school in the UK that didn't have an anatomy department. Wow. And the students very quickly hired a minibus to take them to the nearest anatomy department because they realized they needed to see it. Yeah. Now, I know that we've been looking at, you know, can we use augmented reality, virtual reality, computers, books. And I think all of these have got a place. But particularly if you're going to become a surgeon, you know, you want to be able through your fingers and your hands to be able to touch and to feel. It's only when you separate away that tissue and you can see the blooming size of the aorta or the huge nature of the sciatic nerve. No, no picture does that for you. Feeling it and touching it does. So I think we can afford to reduce a lot of the detail in the medical curriculum in the early stages. But I think we have to bring the medics back to anatomy at a time when they then need more detail. And that's what we're starting to see now. Yeah, I have to say it was quite daunting. The whole dissection yeah. room at the age of 18, going into that room. Yeah. So, so I remember um, also at Guy's 30 years ago, 1992, when you were lecturing us on forensic osteology for an anatomy degree, even then the police would regularly come to your office in your upper reach of the anatomy department and ask you to identify bones. 
and so we're not that animal or human but i've always been interested how did that relationship come about how did you become the person to go to london for the metropolitan police to to look at bones and identify them it's always about being in the wrong place at the wrong time isn't it um there was a particular case ongoing at the time where an individual was alleged to have been murdered in London, the body had been chopped into pieces and the pieces had been distributed to, to rubbish bins around the city. And so the police were having to look in a landfill site. Now, when you go into a landfill site, you're going to find all sorts of things. You're going to find spare ribs from people's Saturday takeaway. You're going to find the odd dead yeah. dog. You know, you you name it, you'll find all sorts of bone in there and not necessarily all of it human. But of course, as they were bringing the stuff out of the landfill site, the pathologists were getting a bit fed up of these sort of smelly bits of bone coming into them. And so eventually, um, Ian West was, in fact, the pathologist at the time. And Dick Shepherd, who's a very dear friend of mine, was working with him. And they phoned me up and said, look, would you come in and look at these bones that this policeman's brought in? And he was um, he was a miserable policeman. He really was. And he looked me up and down as if to say, you know, young girl, what the heck does she know? And he handed me this bone that he'd found. Now, I knew what it was straight away, but I didn't think he would believe me. So I put it into a plastic bag and I popped it on top of the radiator to let some heat get into it because that increases the smell. And then I opened the bag and I popped it under his nose and I said, what can you smell? He said, oh, it smells like roast lamb. I said, exactly. It's a sheep bone. It's not a human bone. And he was so impressed that yeah. he'd solved it, that he thought the girl, as I was labeled, the girl from anatomy, wasn't bad. So every time something came in from that landfill site, then I got hauled down to identify everything from a tortoise to a spare rib. We never find the individual we were looking for. But that's how you get into the sort of mystical mindset of a police force. Bones will ask her. And that, yeah. that was just literally how it came about. It seems that in one of your books you've written that you've had some really obscure fragments to identify. I think it was a fragment of the... Uh, the sphenoid bone that helped you for the case as well. Uh, it seems yeah, quite incredible. Yeah, I mean, that, that was a lady who went missing in Helensburgh in 2004. And her husband had all sorts of jobs. And his latest was that he wanted to build kitchens. And she had said to him, no more, not having this, you know, get a proper job. And the bank phoned her in the afternoon and said, we have a problem with the paperwork that you signed for the bank loan today. And she said, you're blooming right you did because I didn't <laughs> sign anything. And her husband had got somebody to impersonate her to sign for the bank loan. Mm -hmm. She went home that night and she was never seen again. And that set up such a red flag for the police that said, you know, her habits changed. Something has gone wrong. And so they came round to the house, the senior crime officers. They found some blood around the base of a bath tap and they could DNA type it and it was hers. They popped an endoscope down the U-bend of the bath and they found a little bit of chipped tooth and animal. That was hers. But it doesn't mean that, that she's dead. She yeah. could have gone into the bathroom and tripped. She mm -hmm. could have clattered her chin, you know, all sorts of things. And then they found, they swabbed around the door of the washing machine and they found her blood around the door of the washing machine. And when they looked in the filter of the washing machine, they found what they thought was a fragment of bone. And it was about a centimetre long and it was about half a centimetre wide. And fortunately, they showed it to us before they did DNA testing. Because if they'd done the DNA, 
then the whole sample would have just disintegrated. So we were able to identify that there was only one place in the body that could come from, and it could only come from one side. And that's what anatomy detail does. Because mm-hmm. we could see it was definitely a bit of skull because you had smooth bone on the outside and you had the undulations of the brain contours on the inside. Mm-hmm. And the way in which you had the ridge coming round on the lesser wing of the sphenoid, it could only come from the left-hand side. So we were able to identify this tiny fragment before it went for DNA as being part of a head injury that she'd, in, she'd endured. But her body was never found again either. Yes, that was enough to prove that it was a fatal head injury, though, the fact yes. it was a sphenoid bone. I think you mentioned also in one of your books that um, that uh, desecration of the body after death is also a more serious crime. I think in your chapter on dismemberment, which uh, uh, was quite interesting. It's really weird, isn't it? Having yeah. an expertise that is dismemberment. When you know people yeah. say to you, what's your expertise? Identifying children and dismemberment. You know, it's mm-hmm. a, an absolute killer at a dinner conversation. I know. That's right. I can recommend to the listeners that that book where you describe dismemberment chapter is really fascinating and interesting. But it's it's a really unexpected thing most of the time, is that when when somebody is murdered, it's usually not planned. It's in the heat of the moment. It may be drug fueled. It may be alcohol fueled. You didn't expect to kill them, and you're faced with a body. Now, you hope what somebody will do is phone an ambulance or phone the police, but sometimes they don't. They think, what do I do next? They panic. Sometimes they'll hide the body in the house or bury it in the garden, or they think, right, I need to cut it up into pieces. And it's so hard. You've dissected. You know what it's like to cut bones, you know, bodies properly. But when you have no expertise at all, the whole process of dismemberment is actually really challenging. And most people do a rubbish job at it, thank goodness. Back in the 90s, when we were doing an anatomy degree, we were determined the big four of age, sex, ethnicity, and hyperskeleton were well established. We all had our copy of the field manual by Bass, but the last few decades have seen lots of other technologies move forward at rapid pace, such as DNA analysis and facial reconstruction. I believe you also mentioned a Val McDermott that backscatter electron microscopy was a good recent advancement to help uh, with forensic yeah. cases. but. What of you has been the biggest game changer in forensic anthropology apart from DNA? I can't let you off the hook without DNA because when when Alec Jeffries was having that moment in Leicester where he's pulling his hair out and God bless Alec, I know him well, he didn't have a lot of hair, but he was pulling his hair out because he just couldn't get his medical genetics experiments to work. And he had that wonderful eureka moment that every scientist wants to have in their life when he realised the reason he couldn't get his experiment to work was because everybody's DNA was different. And forensic science is a magpie. It steals everybody else's science and then applies it to our own problem. So that changed forensic anthropology globally for everybody. All of the what were regular bread and butter cases were being solved really quickly by DNA. So the cases that were coming to us were becoming more and more challenging and compacted and our skill sets had to change. So uh, since DNA, there are advances, but it, they just don't compare with the change that that made. And that's, you know, that's in my my life history um, that in the 1980s when that happened. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, we've done amazing work with genetics so we can look at individuals' um, DNA and determine what colour of natural hair they would have, what colour of eyes. There's so many genetic markers in there that we can call upon that will tell us a bit about ancestry as well. Um, re- facial reconstruction has just yeah. moved forward enormously and it is that wonderful combination of science and art and we're not trying to create 
the perfect face, just something mm-hmm. that looks familiar. Yeah. But but we will buy, beg, borrow, and steal science from absolutely anybody where we think we can use it. So I remember a lecture on facial reconstruction back in the early 90s, but has AI helped move things along? Is it really accurate facial reconstruction now? So I'm not sure how much AI is being used in facial reconstruction, mm-hmm. but AI is certainly starting to impact on a lot of the research that we do. So yeah. a, a part of research that I became heavily involved in, and it often happens by accident, it's just answering a particular question posed in a case. And it was a case where we had an image of the, the hand and the forearm. And because it was taken under infrared light, we could see superficial vein patterns. So we were able to start looking at identifying and matching perpetrators and suspects from usually hands, but also arms and forearms. And we're training the computers now to do the work that we do to extract the information from these images. Now, that's got a number of really important things. The first one is it it really does protect you from having to look at all of these videos and images, which are hugely distressing. But it also means that the computer actually is less um, subjective, it's more objective, Mm -hmm. and it will find patterns of anatomy that we won't necessarily see. And so my team had a wonderful day when they phoned me up and said, we think the computer's just beaten you on an identification. And I said, absolutely not, how dare you? Mm -hmm. And of course it had, and that's exactly where we wanted to get. So we're using AI, but we're using it cautiously because the courts haven't really caught up with us yet. And our eye is always on the courtroom. We can't move faster than the courtroom. Okay. Um, is there any, you've obviously worked on many forensic cases throughout your career. Is there one particular case that sticks in the mind you're particularly proud of solving? The, oh, there are many. I mean, the ones that, that stick under your saddle are the ones you don't solve, of course. The ones mm-hmm. where you know there's a body and you can't find it, or you have a body and you just can't find a name. So they always stay with you because mm-hmm. they're just the unsolved mystery. Wow. But I suppose I, I felt that I was in the right place at the right time in Kosovo. Because you will remember Professor Louise Scheuer as yeah, well from, yeah. from Thomas's and Guys. And we were writing a textbook on the development of the juvenile skeleton. And we were faced with a case where um, a father and his family were all murdered by a rocket-propelled grenade in Kosovo. Mm-hmm. So the wife, the daughter, the, the sister, the mother-in-law and eight children were all killed. And because it was a rocket-propelled grenade, they were just exploded. Dad, under cover of darkness, found as many of the parts of his family as he could and buried them. And when we came along about a year later, it was identified as an indictment site against Milosevic and his senior officials. Then when we recovered the material that he buried, it didn't even fill a body bag and a half because he just hadn't found everything. So our job was to to lay out and we laid out all the white sheets on on the floor in the mortuary to say... We will try to find a piece of everybody and then there'll be a mass that we just can't separate because the father wanted every one of his family to have a part of them buried because his greatest fear was that his God wouldn't be able to find them if they weren't in their own named grave. Mm -hmm. Now, it would have been really easy for us to just put a little piece on each sheet and say, no one will ever know. But of course, you can't do that 
in yeah. a forensic setting because you have to be able to stand up in court and say, you know, this is what I did. So we'd, we'd managed to find a bit of everyone, you know, from a six-month-old baby. We only found half of his 12-year-old daughter and we were left with two shoulders and partial upper limbs of two 14-year-old twin boys. Mm -hmm. And we thought, well, we can't separate them because they're, they're twin boys, um, same age, obviously, same yeah. parentage, obviously, can't separate them. But one of them had a Mickey Mouse vest on. Mm -hmm. And we said to the police, go and ask Dad, did any of his children, were, were they yeah, into Mickey Mouse? Yeah, and Dad came back and named one of the twins and mm -hmm. said he everything he had was Mickey Mouse. Now we couldn't positively identify him as that individual, not based on something like clothing, yeah. but it gave sufficient closure to allow us to separate two twins yeah. reasonably, and we were able to hand back a body bag that we knew with our hand on our heart had a bit of that named individual inside it. Yeah. And then there was an extra bag of the bits that we just, we couldn't separate. Yeah. Uh, moving on to medical legal work, um, many doctors at some stage in their career are required to give evidence in court and it can be a very stressful experience. And um, I know that even defence QCs may try and trip you up as well. Um, have you got any advice for people on how to cope giving evidence in court? Um, it's really tough because it's a gladiatorial arena. Uh, it's an adversarial system. What You are an expert witness and you have a privileged position in that courtroom. You are allowed to have an opinion. Nobody else is allowed to have an opinion, but you are. And one side in that courtroom will want you to come out as the world's leading expert. Mm -hmm. And the other side of the courtroom will want to prove you're an idiot. Yeah, And you will be one or other. And I've been both. It just yeah. depends how it goes on the day. Yeah. The most important thing is that you are not there to support a case. You're not there to advocate for a case. Mm -hmm. You're being asked as an expert witness to have unbiased opinion. What yeah. does the evidence tell you? And if you can shut out the circumstances of the case, your job is find the evidence, recover the evidence, analyze the evidence and present it. And in a medical situation, you might just be at the point of analyzing and presenting. You might not have the others. Yeah. Don't think about the case. The less you know about the case, the better, because mm -hmm. then you're not influenced by it. And irrespective of whether you're appearing as a crown witness or a defense witness, your evidence should be exactly the same mm -hmm. because you're not there to advocate for anyone. Yeah. If you can be prepared, the most important thing is to be prepared. So do your homework, do the background research, because you can bet that the opposing counsel will be doing theirs. Yeah. And they won't only be doing it on the evidence. There's three ways in which a lawyer can come after you. And the first one is about your evidence. So you need to be prepared with your evidence. The second thing they'll come after you with is your protocols and your procedures. Did you sign that bit of paper? Did you put the mm -hmm. wrong date on it? I have seen an expert witness reduced to rubble because they didn't write down how many hours they had sat at the microscope. Because once the questioning came in, well, yeah. how, you, you say you spent a number of amounts of time. How much time? Well, I don't remember. What do you mean you don't remember? You're an expert witness. Your job is to document everything. You should know every. What kind of an expert witness are you? You know, yeah. so it can happen there. And the third thing is they'll come after you personally. So they will check what you have on Facebook, on Twitter, on anywhere. And if anything can be used against you and it's it's legitimate to do so, they mm -hmm. will. Yeah. So wear comfortable clothes. 
don't wear something that's cutting off your circulation. Yeah. I always wear slip-on shoes, so I always slip them off the minute I go into the witness box because yeah. my rationale is that if I've got my feet in, in contact with the ground, I'm about as grounded as I can get. Mm -hmm. The easy bit comes first, the side that has retained you. The difficult bit comes with the opposing side. Don't rise to it. They're trying to get the rise out of you. Yeah. You've got to remain calm. And have they learned yet yeah, not to try and chip you up because it's not possible? I don't think. Oh, it's... no, they always do it. Yeah. So I have an adversary in Scotland, and anyone in Scotland will know Donald Finlay, KC. And yeah. Donald is a very dear friend of mine, but not in the courtroom. Yeah. And we, the, the case that I was telling you about was the small fragment of Sphenoid. Donald was the defence counsel. And, you know, he, he has great theatre. And so Donald reached underneath his table and brought out Gray's Anatomy and he dropped it with great aplomb on the table in front of him. And he said, you know, now, Professor, he says, I'm not doubting you for a moment. So you know what's coming. Yeah. And he cross-examined me, I would say, for about two hours wow. on the development of the sphenoid, on the growth of the sphenoid, yeah. on the fracturing of the sphenoid on the anatomy of the sphenoid. Yeah. Don't make the mistake of thinking that, that good lawyers don't do their homework. They mm -hmm. do. Yeah. And when I caught up with them at a conference about a month or so later, I went, oh, Donald, I said, you were so hard on me in there. He says, I, he says, I like to get you in the witness box. It's a bit of fun. So <laughs> bear in mind, you know, it isn't fun from our perspective, but for yeah. them, it's a sport, yeah, yeah. It can. They're, they're there to represent their clients right. exactly. and they are yeah. there to do whatever they mm -hmm. can for yeah. the betterment of their client. Your job is to try and remain absolutely in yeah. the middle line. So you really have to know yourself a bit like a viver yeah. as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I think you've got a good friendship with Val McDermott, along with other crime writers, started a campaign for a million for a walk for <laughs> Mortary and Dundee, which is named after her. Um, I know she often asks you for forensic advice for novels, but is a service offered to other crime writers, TV and film script writers? So I imagine that you've probably got quite a lot of, uh, uh, of information you could provide for these forensic people. I, I do. So I, I, Val and I have known each other for a very, very long time. And she's very naughty. So she'll phone me up and, and she'll say, you know, how are you? How are things? And it all seems terribly innocuous. And then she'll say, oh, what are you working on? And before you know it, your research has appeared in one of her novels before it's even got into the literature. So we, we have a really good working relationship. And I have a number of other crime writers that do the similar sort of thing. They'll either phone me up and say, I'm thinking of doing this, does that sound right? Or they'll send me a section to say, does this flow? And where it's a crime writer that really cares that their reader is getting you know, a genuine experience, that really fills me full of confidence because they, they respect their reader and they want it to be as close to reality as possible. So I'm really happy to be able to do that. I've done one or two television things. I'm not so keen on television. I like radio and I like being in the background. I've got a face for radio. I don't want to be in front of a camera. Yeah. Okay. Medics, nurses, paramedics, and lots of people working in emergency service will witness death and other distressing scenes in their careers. And with your time working with friends, especially investigating the bodies in mass graves and victims of mass fatalities, you must have seen some horrific things. So, but outwardly, you seem to appear to cope really well, quite stoical. But does it affect you? And if not, how do you manage not to let it affect you and or take it home with you? Do you have any advice for others with regards to this? Because it's uh, it can be very stressful witnessing things, and obviously things which involve inhumanity are probably even worse. 
it, it is. And and anyone who says that they're not affected by it isn't telling the truth. It's how you manage it is, is the honest truth. And uh, Charlie Hepburn was uh, a detective in Northern Constabulary many, many years ago. Charlie is now retired. And he gave me the best piece of advice that anybody gave me. So the advice, first of all, was don't do it. He said, but you're a middle-aged, redheaded woman, so you won't listen to me anyway, which was true. Um, and he said to me, don't own the guilt. You didn't mm-hmm. cause this. You couldn't stop it. It's not your job to own it. And he was the one who said to me, your job is to find the evidence, recover it, analyze it, and present it, and go home. Mm-hmm. It's somebody else's job to find somebody guilty or innocent. Somebody yeah. else's job to be outraged. Because mm-hmm. if you become personally involved, you're not being an objective scientist. So that was the most important piece of advice I think I was ever mm-hmm. given. What I try to do is I try to think inside my head as if I have a clinical box. Mm-hmm. And I go into that box to do my work and I close the door and I don't think about my family and my home. Yeah. And then when I finish my job, I come out of that box and I close the door and I leave it behind. Mm-hmm. Now, my hope is that I will always remember to close the door. Yeah. But every now and again, there is that fear that you just don't get the door on the snib mm-hmm. and will your two lives bleed into each other. Yeah. And because there's always that risk, I have a wingman. And mm-hmm. my wingman, I've worked with her for over 20 years. And I'm her wingman, she's mine. We know each other better than anybody else knows us. And I can tell her anything and she can tell me anything. She will notice my behavior, I will notice hers. And that buddy system, that check system is Mm. really important for us. And, you know, if either of us feels something's got to us, and there is one case which I really won't describe because it wouldn't be appropriate, but it was one where both of us said, you know, that's probably the worst thing that we have ever seen. And both of us, when we talk about it, our faces screw up because it was just so awful. But we both understand it because we saw it and we can talk to each other about it, but we can't talk to anybody else. Yeah. And, And that... It's really important not to be isolated. It's important to have somebody you trust. Mm -hmm. It's important to have a mindset that says, if I feel something's going wrong, what do I do? I've got a body. I've got somebody I can go to. There's a form of debriefing, I guess. And do you debrief when you're out at these these investigations in other countries? Yeah. We, we we tried a bit of it in Kosovo um, because yeah. we were with the Metropolitan Police yeah. and they decided to send some councillors out to us. But, you know, we'd been out there for two months solid. We, we were working as a feral team, you know, yeah. we, we were looking after each other. And with the best will in the world, they sent out councillors and they wanted to ask us how we felt. It didn't go down well, is the yeah. honest truth. It really didn't. Um, and I think there is an important message in there that says, if a team is working and supporting itself, that's yeah. what it needs. Mm-hmm. Um, an outsider coming into that team, ostensibly mm-hmm. just to talk about your feelings, is never going to be terribly welcome. And so th- there, there is a role in there for those I know who want to go and find the counsellors or, or to have that relationship. But I think you have to judge the team dynamic as it's going at the time. Okay. Um, so obviously you've got a very busy career, very big output with writing books, etc. Um, but how does Professor Sue Black relax? Is it a bottle of wine and large gin tonic? Is it Love Island or a Netflix six parter? I can't Love imagine that Island. is the case. Yeah. Behave yourself. How, how does you, how does, how do you, do you, do you manage to relax? What, what do you do? Um, uh, so I, I'm a, 
I'm ashamed to say that I've completely gone off wine, so I'm not a drinker. Yeah. Um, I, I will never refuse cake, which is why I will never be a size eight. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do look after, I do enjoy finer things, but I, I, I'm not a drinker, unfortunately. Um, I like to write, is the honest truth. So yeah. for me, um, three weeks of the summer were spent in my attic writing mm-hmm. and just losing myself in my own head for me is is a holiday and, and my grandmother used to say you know if you can't live comfortably with what's between your own ears then everybody's going to be bored by you aren't they so i i like the isolation of writing that that's yeah. for me what i do if i have any downtime okay um so have you got any opinion on the meaning of life at all oh gosh life is far so it's far too short and yeah. the and my granny I, my grandmother was the most important person to me but i can remember her saying to me as a child as you get older time goes faster which i thought was a ridiculous thing to say because mm-hmm. of course time is measured but she was right the older you get the faster time moves and you yeah. realize there's less time in front of you than there is behind you mm-hmm. and i think probably as you get older you repurpose so mm-hmm. You don't do, I mean, I've, my very dear friend, Alan Alder, the actor, Alan always says to me, don't look for happiness. What a waste of time it is looking for happiness. Look for contentment. Yeah. And if you can find contentment, then actually you're a lot happier than in the search yeah. for happiness. So the meaning of life for me is contentment. It's about family. It's about mm-hmm. doing the things I want to do. It's about being able to be grateful for all of the opportunities that I've had and the marvelous people that I've met throughout my life. And who would have thought, Peter, after all this time, we'd be in a position where we are talking this afternoon. Isn't that just marvelous? That's what life's about. Intersections with other people. Yeah, this is the question I've been dying to ask for this whole interview. And I'm building up to it is, is there any meaning in death? Because I know on your Desert Island disc, you touched very briefly on the spiritual side of things. And I thought you were the best person to ask, given you've been exposed to so much death in your career. And I know of no way of knowing for sure, but do you have any idea whether there's any continuation of the human spirit and soul after death? Do you think that there is an afterlife? I know you mentioned that that your grandmother's been on your left shoulder for your life. My grandmother was a great... She was a West Coaster, a Scottish West Coaster who believed in ghosts and spirits and all sorts of things, which I don't. I have never been spooked by the dead, ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, The living terrify me, but the dead don't. The dead are incredibly well behaved. They they do exactly what I expect them to do. Um, My grandmother would say, you live as long as you are in somebody's memory or somebody's heart. Mm-hmm. And I think in that regard, there is a, a life beyond death. She's very much in my heart, very yeah. much in my head. So she's not dead. And my daughters will say, every time I open my mouth, my father falls out. Yeah. And they will say, granddad's dead, is he? He's still yeah. alive. So so I think as long yeah. as we hold people still alive, mm-hmm. I had the, the real honor of being with my father when he took his last breath. Mm-hmm. And nothing would have persuaded me to leave him until he died. Yeah. Um, I needed to be there for him the whole way through. But when he took his final breath and he was gone, what was left behind was not my father. Mm-hmm. It was the shell that he occupied. And yeah. I had no trouble leaving his body, but I would never have left him for as long as he yeah. occupied it. Yeah. Where did he go? I have no idea. Is mm-hmm. it just that a light switch goes off? I don't mm-hmm. know. But isn't that life's greatest big 
last adventure. And I yeah. can't wait. I want to mm. know what it feels like to die. I want to know what it smells like, what it tastes like. Mm -hmm. It's one ad last adventure that I know I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it on my own. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't want it to come anytime soon. Thank you very yeah, much indeed. Do, yeah. But I do want to be able to experience what that feels like. Yeah. And my whole intention is to go on beyond death. So I intend to live beyond my death in that my body is donated to the anatomy department in Dundee. Yeah. So I will be dissected. I'd quite like them to take all the soft tissue, the skin, and there's far too much fat, but they'll do that anyway, and send that up in smoke. I'd love them to be able to keep my skeleton so that if my skeleton yeah. could be boiled to get the fat out and I could carry on teaching for the rest of my death, wouldn't yeah. that be fantastic? That's a great ambition to have, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess you won't get tired as well. You can carry on teaching, yeah. Forever, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. brilliant. Um, so and has, has that all been agreed with Dundee? Have you been to a, to a chapter, Dundee, about this? My, my, my forms are all with Dundee. Yeah. Whether at the time they have got the capability to macerate my skeleton down needs to be seen to be believed. Who knows? Yeah. That's my hope. But they will That's certainly have my body for dissection. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, okay. Current and future plans. I think your magnum opus has been your juvenile skeleton book with Professor yeah. Louis Shoyer. Um, and I can't imagine you retiring. But any other books or projects underway? I know you said you were writing over the summer. Um, Lots. So I have five books on the go at the moment. Um, yeah. So I like to sort of chop from from one to the other. Yeah. Um, I've got uh, a second edition of a textbook that we're working on, um, which, you know, doesn't fill me full of great enthusiasm, but it does need to be done. It needs to be updated. Um, there's a couple of other books that I'm writing with with other people who are new new authors, and so they're looking for a, a little bit of um, support. Yeah. And then the other two, one is a biography, and the other is a, a faction within that biography. Okay, that sounds very interesting. Look forward to reading that then. Um, and uh, I guess uh, we'll round off with this last question then. Um, do you have a singular piece of advice for any young scientist or researcher at the start of their career? Um, if you've got anything, to, someone to take with them, I guess even for people like me now, so to move forward, so have you got any advice that you've kind of learned from uh, in your career. I, I think my generation is a product of my parents' generation. We expected to come out of school, go into a job and have that job for the rest of your life. And the world has changed so much. So my, my biggest piece of advice is don't be afraid to change. Mm -hmm. If you're not enjoying what you do, life is far too short. Yeah. Find whatever it is that makes your heart sing, makes your, your head soar do that because you don't know how long you've got. You might have another 60 years, you might have another 60 minutes. And so pack everything into today that you possibly can because we don't know what tomorrow brings. So yeah. don't be afraid to change. Yeah, that's uh, sound, sound advice there. Um, so I guess we'll draw things for close. I'll let you either carry on some work or maybe some croquet or some punting in Oxford this afternoon. I think, it's, a, I think it's actually a cup of tea, is cup the honest tea. truth. How exciting is that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much for being a wonderful guest on this uh, podcast. And um, hopefully we'll catch up sometime in the future. But thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you, Peter. It's been such a personal pleasure to come back to see you again. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today at this Bayer-funded On The Horizon podcast. And we hope you'll join us again for the next episode. Until then, goodbye. Bye.